Good. Let's stand together, and uh, we are looking at um, the book of Philippians today, and we're on our second installment of The Power of Christmas, and uh, uh, we are looking at hope. And uh, we're going to read uh, Philippians. I'm going to read the green, and you're going to read white. And this is what it says. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Ooh. Through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a ser- servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Beautiful. Let's pray together. Father, we just pause again to acknowledge your presence. Lord, we're so thankful that you have again shown your love for us in Jesus so extravagantly and for the work and ministry of the Spirit that takes what you've accomplished in Christ and makes it available and possible in our lives. And so we ask now that you would give us a voice to speak, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to comprehend, but particularly as we go out from this place and as we go out into our lives, whether it is in our homes or neighborhoods, whether it's the places where we work and get our education, our services, wherever it is that we interact with the city of Sudbury and in the city of Sudbury or in our local communities, Father, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us the strength, the wisdom, the courage to be as harmless as doves but as wise as serpents as we live out in tangible, meaningful ways what it means to be the followers of Jesus Christ. We love you. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, we're going to have communion um, in just a couple, in a few moments. Um, well, maybe a little longer in a few moments. Um, <clears throat> you know what I mean. And anyway, uh, if you were watching online and you didn't make it through the snow today, um, I would encourage you, even in your home uh, with your family, uh, or if you have accessibility, uh, you can use juice, you can use water. Um, and you can use some sort of bread or cracker, and at the end of service uh, toward communion, you can participate uh, in communion with us as well if you're watching online, as we will in the main auditorium. So we're talking about Christmas, the power of Christmas, hope. And so in 22 days, I counted them, the malls will close the stores will turn off their lights, and family and friends will gather, and all over, the people will be celebrating the birth of Jesus. Think about some of the songs that we sang even this morning, but other songs like, O Come All Ye Faithful, Silent Night, The First Noel, all of these songs that have been written, and dozens of more along with them, that have been written to celebrate and commemorate the birth of Jesus. But December 25 does not mark the beginning of the Son of God. In order to do that, we have to go back to the beginning, and I suspect for some of us that means Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, where it says, in the beginning. But we can't start there either because the Christmas story or the Christmas journey for Jesus begins 
in eternity past. The journey really starts in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, when we think about eternity past, we can't. We cannot. Because it's a thought that is just simply beyond our finite minds to comprehend. A question that is often asked is uh, by kids and by young people and sometimes by adults is, where did God come from? Well, our best and worst answer is that we God is, God has always been. Now, it's a terrible answer, but it's the best we got because we cannot get our heads around the concept that there never was a time that God was not. He always was. And there's this. When we think of eternity past, we probably think of before time began, that the story begins before time began in eternity past. But again, we're still in the same situation. We cannot understand or imagine any sort of existence before time began. And also when we think of eternity past, we think of maybe when a time when God was alone. But accept the fact that there never was a time that God was ever alone when God was by himself. We understand that God has always been a community of persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, or the Godhead. So when Philippians chapter 2 in our text, verse 6, says these words, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, the truth is Jesus didn't have to grasp it because he was and is and always will be in very nature God. So there's never a time when God was alone. There was never a time when God was lonely. Matter of fact, that would mean that if God needed anyone or God needed anything or someone or something, then he wouldn't be God. But God is self-sufficient in and of himself. Now, I know, I know this is mind-bending stuff. I understand it is for all of us. But there's also this. When we think of eternity past, we may think of pre-creation. The time before there was anything ever created. And again, we are back at the same place we started. The truth is we can't imagine at a time in eternity past when there was nothing. And there was a time when there was nothing other than God. Matter of fact, we do not even know if there was a place called heaven created yet. We don't know that. But let's assume there was. Let's say there was. And the decision was made in the Godhead amongst the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the second person of the Trinity would come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, or the second person of the Trinity, would actually leave heaven. Heaven. What do you think when you think about 
heaven. Heaven is a place, an environment, we are told, of unimaginable beauty and splendor. And so when the second person of the Trinity came to earth in the form of an embryo, an infant, a baby, a child, he left the splendor and the glory of heaven to do so. Now, you and I, we are accustomed to a certain standard of living, a certain level of comfort that we not only are used to, but we sort of expect. A bunch of years ago, I went to Chicago with a friend of mine. And let's just say this, that my friend um, is sort of on the frugal side of things. And so he booked the hotel. And he got it for $23 Canadian. Mm-hmm. So we went into this hotel and um, we checked in and everything looked okay. And the hallways had been newly renovated. And it looked pretty good. We opened the door and uh, to our dismay, there was shag carpet on the floor. Now, I'm not talking about the faux carpet that's back sort of in style. I'm talking the stuff from the 60s. So we didn't dare take our shoes off. So I thought I would open the window and see what kind of view we had. And lo and behold, I opened the drapes, and I'm staring right into a rooftop AC unit. Well, in the morning, we went to sleep with our shoes on, and I want you to know that I did check that bed, the one I was sleeping in anyway. I got up the next morning, we got up the next morning, and my friend came out of the bathroom, and he was laughing, he kind of chuckling to himself like, you know, you know, like somebody does when you know that they're going to experience something. So I said, what are you laughing at? He said, oh, you'll see. Okay. So I got into the bathroom and I got into the shower and the shower nozzle was right there. Right there. They had moved it. There. No joke. You see, we are used to a certain level, an expectation of comfort and a standard of living. At the same time, because you and I only know our lives, we only know this earth, we probably don't reflect much around what it must have been like for the second person of the Trinity, the Son, to leave the splendor and the glory of heaven and come to earth. The sights, the smells, the sounds, the splendors of heaven are all that the second person of the Trinity knew in eternity past. And when he wakes as a baby in Bethlehem, the first thing that he sees on planet Earth is the ceiling of a cave, a modified animal burn. The first smells that he smells other than his mother is hay, animals, urine, and manure. The first sounds that he hears along with his mother's voice are donkeys baying, 
cows lowing and bleeding sheep. Somebody has called it the scandal of the cattle shed. In heaven, Jesus had legions of angels hovering around the throne. He gets down on planet earth and there's none of that. There's just cows and donkeys and sheep and a few people standing around. Now that's a big demotion. That is a huge step down. When the Christmas story or the Christmas journey continues to earth. And when Jesus steps down, it's a lot further down than we can understand or we can even accept or appreciate. The gap between heaven and earth is huge, but the gap becomes even greater when we read in our text. But he emptied himself. And by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, of human beings. So what does that even mean? He emptied himself. Emptied himself of what? Well, we know what it cannot mean. It cannot mean that he gave up being God because in that case, if he could give up being God, he wouldn't be God in the first place. We are told in the Bible that Jesus is fully God, fully man, 100% God, 100% man. Colossians says these words, for in him, in Jesus, the fullness or the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So what did he empty himself of? Well, first, he covered, he concealed, he hid his glory. That Jesus voluntarily chose to give up the use of his prerogatives and his abilities and his attributes as God. That in eternity past, when the decision was made amongst the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he would choose to come to earth, he would also choose at the same time to restrain using his God power. Everything that Jesus did was from the posture and from the position of being a human being. And that's why Acts says these words, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That everything Jesus did was by the power, was in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not once in his life on earth did Jesus ever access his godness. And here's the first reason why. The first reason why is that in order that he might identify with us, you and I. The moment that Jesus, if he were to access his godness and do things as God, he could no longer identify with us because you and I, we don't have any access to our God abilities. We are dependent upon the help and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I know, I know. It's mind-bending. But Timothy says this in the message. 
He says, this Christian life is a great mystery. For exceeding, for exceeding our, but far exceeding our understanding, but some things are clear enough. He appeared in a human body, was proved right by the invisible spirit. You and I, we only know what it's like to be human. We know the feeling of being hungry, of being tired, of being thirsty. And Jesus takes all the hits and the blows that we take. He experiences all the emotions and the sensations that you and I experience, joy and sorrow, being tired and being hungry and being thirsty. It wasn't just sort of a flyby or an overhead pass. Jesus actually becomes a human being. So what does this feel like for the second person of the Trinity? Well, it's another step down which brings us then to the second reason why Jesus came in human form and only operated and functioned as a human being, and that is to be our example. That not only does Jesus take on human form, but he functions like a servant, or we could use the word teacher. Verse 7 again in our text says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in human likeness. This past week, I read a great quote. Well, I think it's a great quote. You may not think so. And it says this. If your community tends to curse the darkness before lighting candles, consider that you might be the one to buy the candles. Jesus not only bought the candles, he lit the candles. He brought light the darkness. Now, we made this observation last year. Have you ever noticed in reading the Christmas story how much of the Christmas story happens at night or in the darkness? There's a reason. It's a metaphor. One of the most famous statements about Christmas and the Advent comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, where Isaiah says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And as a servant and as a teacher, Jesus did not do a three or four week intensive and then sort of booted off back to heaven again. Our text goes on to read in verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That little phrase, even death on a cross. Now think about it. Think about it. Who in the world would choose to die on a cross? I mean, death is one thing, but death on a cross who would choose that? And then Hebrews says, but we see him, Jesus, 
who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so we have no idea. I have no idea. I have no concept of the gap between eternity past and the cross. And there's also this. As Christians, we often talk about, as evangelicals, we often talk about Jesus' death on the cross as being the greatest sacrifice. And I understand what we mean. But I'm convinced that the cross is the second greatest sacrifice for Jesus. I think Jesus' greatest sacrifice was knowing that once he agreed to this decision in the Godhead in eternity past between the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Jesus knew that once he came in human flesh and took on a human body, that he would never be able to return quite to what he was like before. Now, we're told that God is spirit. That means that God the Father and God the Son are invisible. We cannot see them. But Jesus knew that once he became human, that his physical body would be forever. He would never return to be just spirit again. That Jesus right now is in heaven in physical body form. I know, I know, it's mind-bending. But that's why the resurrection, why the Bible is so careful to talk about the resurrection as being a bodily physical resurrection. So this is God's, this is Jesus' greatest sacrifice. I mean, one of the reasons why we find this hard to take in and hard to understand is because, again, we can't imagine what life must be like in the Holy Trinity. We can't imagine what what it means to be God, this place of perfect communion, of intimacy, of perfect love and joy and peace that exists amongst Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then there's this. You should put your seatbelt on. We are told. So remember now, the life of God is perfect community, perfect intimacy, perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect unity, and everything else that you can name perfect. And we are told that this is the exact community and belonging that Jesus provides for us. That he has made available and possible in our lives to participate in the life of the Holy Trinity to participate in the life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I know that some of you Bible scholars are a little unsure and wondering, oh, pastor, is this really the case? Well, you don't have to take my word for it. 
You can take Peter's word for it. Peter says this, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence. Got that? Calls us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature. I know. It's mind-bending. Folks, that should knock our socks off. This is the kind of community, this is the kind of belonging that we have been looking for all of our life. The Christmas journey begins in eternity past. It continues to earth. And then it cycles. And the Christian and the Christmas journey returns to eternity again. For Jesus, the Christmas journey is from glory to glory. It's cyclical. He started in eternity past. He came to earth and he returned to eternity. Now, Psalm 24, chapter, sorry, Psalm chapter 24, verses 7 to 10, gives us heaven's response to the return of the king. This is, uh, Psalm 24, verse 7, is heaven's view, heaven's viewpoint, perspective of, of Jesus as he is returning back to glory, back to heaven back to eternity, and this is what the angels and how the angels greet him with one voice and one anthem. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, Let the king, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now, one of the questions that gets asked is, what are we going to do in heaven? Well, there's been a lot of suggestions. And some people, someone suggested that heaven is going to be one long church service. Chorus after chorus, it's going to be Sunday every day. And somebody else responded and said, well, that sounds more like the other place to me. I'm just saying. But seriously, one of the things that we're going to do is we are going to worship God. And I think another thing that we're going to do is that there is going to be work and responsibility. Revelation chapter 21 says something very interesting. It says this, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There's not just going to be a new heaven, there's going to be a new earth. So do you think earth is not going to be populated? I would not think so. And then it says this, it says in Revelation 21 verse 25, it says, and its gates, its gates will be 
never shut by day because we will be coming and going. I think that we're going to have responsibilities on this new earth. We're not going to be all playing a harp and sitting on clouds. I don't even like harp, but that's a whole other thing. Forgive me if you like harp. But it's going to be coming and going all the time. That's why the gates are going to be open, because there's going to be no night. You know what heaven's going to be like? Heaven's going to be like living in the Arctic. Actually, you know what? It's going to be like Finland in the summer. It's going to be light all the time. But someone else suggested that we will spend all eternity probing the depths of God. And I think that has merit to it for me. Because we haven't even begun to scratch the surface as to the understanding and comprehending the being and the, purpose, purpose, the person of God. Now, the other day, somebody asked me, they said, do you think there's going to be marriage and family in heaven? And I said, no, no. And then I thought about it. And I said, of course there's going to be marriage and family in heaven. Of course there is. That's how God kicks it all off. By a marriage and by a wedding reception. Listen to what Revelation 19 says. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the, the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this down or write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now, now, listen. I don't know what your idea of a marriage and a marriage reception looks like. Now, <clears throat> we've been doing pastoral ministry for 33 years. And uh, I have gone to some great weddings. And I've gone to some weddings that I just got to tell you, folks, it is just plain dull. All right? This is not anything like that. This is a Jewish wedding where there is laughing and there is dancing and there is drinking. Non-alcoholic, of course. There is drinking and there's a lot of breaking of glass. Mazel tov, good fortune. That's the kind of experience it's going to be a party. Compola was right. The kingdom of God is a party. What did Jesus say? When, the, when somebody comes to faith in Christ and accepts Christ, there is a party in heaven amongst the angels. It is not going to be dull, and I guarantee you it's not going to be Sunday after Sunday and a church service after a church service. It is going to be a party. Yes. Listen to what Isaiah says. Us Pentecostals are not going to like this. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. No keto diets. 
a feast, there it is, Pentecostals, of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. God takes one of the most precious and intimate moments of the human experience, our wedding night, to tell us about the intimacy and the real experience and adventure of heaven. And it is the deepest longing of every single person in this room. It is the deepest longing in the heart of every person watching online. It reminds me of the end of the book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, where C.S. Lewis writes, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I cannot write them. For us, this is the end of all the stories. We can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, for us, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their lives in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story that no one on earth has read that goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. You know what this is called? Do you know what this is called? It's called the blessed hope. It's called our happy hope. Paul said in Titus, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what God is doing in us and through us while we're waiting for our happy hope, while we're waiting for our blessed hope, is absolutely glorious. Somebody wrote, in that future, all things will be emancipated from their slavery to death and live eternally to feast at the banquet prepared by God. <laughs> 